0: Welcome to Present Value.
1: Hi everyone, Serena Alavia here. We're excited to share a conversation between Cornell economist David Easley and senior producer Caroline Wright. This conversation covers a lot of ground. First, they get into topics covered in Professor Easley's 700-person networks class, which is actually the most popular class at Cornell. Then, they get into Bitcoin, how different beliefs and goals can affect market outcomes, and how to work with your spouse. And fun fact, Professor Easley is already a friend of the pod. His wife, Maureen O'Hara, was a guest on episode eight, where we talked about market microstructure and financial ethics. Definitely check out that episode, but first, Here's our conversation with David Easley and Caroline Wright. David Easley is the Henry Scarborough Professor of Social Science at Cornell University. Easley holds a PhD in economics from Northwestern University and is a fellow of the Econometric Society. Easley's work focuses on economics, finance, and decision theory. In economics, he focuses on learning, wealth dynamics, and natural selection in markets. In finance, his work focuses on market microstructure, which he studies alongside his wife, former present value guest Maureen O'Hara. In decision theory, Easley focuses on modeling decision-making in complex environments. He is the co-author of Networks, Crowds, and Markets, Reasoning About a Highly Connected World, which is the foundational text for many courses on the topic of networks at universities around the world. Professor Easley, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Oh, great. Thanks, Carly. Thanks for the great introduction.
1: You're welcome. You teach one of the most popular courses here at Cornell, alongside Austin Benson, called Networks. It's pretty amazing. There's 700 people enrolled in your class. Can you tell our listeners a bit about why you wanted to create this class and what you hope students get out of it?
0: Sure. I'd be happy to. So that's a class that John Kleinberg and I created a little over 10 years ago. And it came about because John and I and actually other economists, and other computer scientists were working together on the topic. And we all realized that it would be great if we each knew more about the basics in our disciplines. And... We could have, of course, communicated that as we typically do by going to the board and proving theorems, but we decided it would actually be much more useful and more interesting to do it at the level where we could explain this to undergrads. So we decided to create a course in an area where, as far as I know, there really wasn't an introductory undergraduate course that was comprehensive like ours. There were some courses that were similar, particularly one at Penn, but not quite with the same focus we had in mind. So we set off to build a new course, which actually was a tremendous amount of work. And we thought that it would have the two of us, maybe a couple of other faculty members and a handful of students. Even in the first year, actually, that was wrong. There were a lot of students. And then it just kept growing and growing to the point now where at the beginning of the fall semester when this course is offered, it is always at its cap, which is 700, because that's the capacity of the Statler Auditorium, the largest classroom that we really have as a classroom. It actually typically falls off a bit after that because people realize that although we have lots of pretty pictures of networks, there's also a lot of analysis in the class. So it typically falls down to somewhere around 650 by the time it finishes. And actually this year I'm teaching with Austin Benson because John Kleinberg is on sabbatical. And in the past I've actually taught it with Ava Tardos when John's been gone. So there's A group of us who teach it now.
1: Is there one example or lesson from the class that exemplifies kind of the concepts that you're trying to teach or that resonates most with students?
0: Oh boy, that's tough. The whole point of the class is to present a network point of view about the world. We feel like we've accomplished our goal if students leave and they think about everything in terms of networks, whether it's social groups that they participate in or how information spreads online. So there's a lot of different things. I think in terms of what students like, honestly, they probably find the material on how Google works online and how it actually does web search and then how it does auctions to be the most practical in the sense that after the end of this, they know the basics of web search, the computer science side of it which really is a network analysis. And then they also know how Google makes money by giving away what they do, which is essentially by selling auctions using a really clever mechanism.
1: So that's something that I've been really curious about is how does Google really do search?
0: Actually, that's you know, it's a really interesting question because if you think about it, Google or for that matter, the other search engines produce answers to queries virtually instantly. So you type in a phrase that you want to look for, You know, my favorite example is to type in something like apartment rental, Brooklyn, New York, just the the one I did in class. And you get back all kinds of answers, and you get them back instantly. And actually, they're remarkably good. And, you know, they can't actually be going out and physically searching through lots of web pages to see how to answer this. Instead, at a basic level, what's going on is web pages are actually ranking each other, and they're using that ranking. Google uses something called PageRank. Which essentially really does use the hyperlinks on the web as a way to see what web pages think is important about other web pages. They compute and recompute this thing constantly so that when you turn in a search term, the organic search results that they give you, the ones that are not being paid for by advertisers, just pop out of that mechanism. And we teach a bit about how that works and various ways to do it. Of course, you also see ads. You see sponsored links. And those are there not because they come out of the organic search engine, because those are there because people pay for them.
1: Another thing you mentioned is auctions. And as I kind of roughly understand it, there are kind of two different approaches to it. And Facebook and Google take separate approaches. Can you explain why they do this and what the differences mean for advertisers and potentially end users?
0: Uh, Sure. So to a little bit of background, if you want to have your ad show up, let's go back to my Brooklyn apartment. If you've got apartments to rent, or if you're an agent who's trying to rent apartments, you would really like to have your ad show up at the top of the page when people search, or at least on the first page. And there's a really interesting question of how Google, or for that matter another search engine, would price that. Because the amount that people are willing to pay varies tremendously over time and over users, and Google doesn't really know what that is. So instead, what they do is they run an auction. In fact, they run auctions constantly. Google uses something called the generalized second price auction, which was motivated by, but isn't exactly the same as, a basic second price auction. Second price auction sounds strange because in a standard second price auction, say for one good, the seller sells the good to the person who bids the most, but charges them the second highest bid. And at first glance, that seems really odd because if people bid, why wouldn't you charge the person who bid the most their bid? Why charge them a different bid? But of course, if you did that, people would bid different amounts. It's been shown actually quite a long time ago in economics that in a second price auction, it's actually a dominant strategy to bid truthfully. That is, no matter what you think the other people are doing, you know, no matter how many of them there are, no matter how smart or helpful, that matter how dumb they are, if you run a second price auction, you should bid your true value. Whereas if you run a first price auction, which seems more intuitive, sell the item to the highest bidder at the highest, at his actual bid, the highest bid, you don't want to turn in your true bid. Cause if you do, then if you win, you pay exactly what it's worth to you and you get no excess value. And actually in that auction, figuring out how to bid is really complex. So Google uses this generalized second price auction, which is roughly based on second price auctions. It's actually not quite right in the sense that it's not in fact a dominant strategy to bid truthfully in their auction. But it's not a bad approximation. It works really well. Facebook, on the other hand, uses a auction form that would take a long time to explain. It's the content of a couple of lectures in the class. It's called a VCG or Vickery-Clark-Groves auction in which it really is a generalization of second price auctions to multiple units. And that auction is truly a dominant strategy to bid a true value. And Facebook tries to explain this to bidders. So they're both using results from economics, actually, about how to sell advertising. It's a great example of a blend of computer science and economics, which is in part what I do. There's the computer science side about how to do search for Google and then how to make money by running really clever auctions. And then on the Facebook side, it's running clever auctions, which comes from economics, But they're actually not doing search. They're doing friend recommendations and news feeds. And their friend recommendations actually come from basic results and sociology. So that's another thing this course covers is a a little bit of sociology.
1: Interesting. Can you explain that a bit more, how it relates to sociology?
0: Sure. The idea here is actually remarkably simple, but it turns out to be also remarkably powerful. And it's really something called triadic closure, which means that If you have two people who start off and who are friends and you think about this first person, let's make it me, and you and I are friends in my example, then if I'm friends with another person, there's, according to triad Closure, a good chance that you and that other person are friends. Just because in social groups, it tends to be the case that friends are friends are friends. Facebook actually uses that as the way they recommend friends. What they do is built on that. It's actually more complex, but that's fundamentally what's going on. Actually, in the class every semester, we have someone from Facebook come and talk about what Facebook does in various aspects of their business. And they're always great. They always say, you know, what we do is what you're learning with some more details, which we're, of course, not going to reveal to you. But it's essentially results from sociology that drive it.
1: Outside of the classroom, you've done a lot of research on systemic risk, particularly in financial markets. I understand that some of your work in this area relates to how risk in the financial system stems from the size and the shape of trading networks. Can you walk our listeners through your thoughts on this?
0: The work that I've done on that particular topic is actually rather theoretical and somewhat abstract. So it's not directly about systemic risk and finance, but it's related to the basic ideas. What I worked on with some of my colleagues, actually in economics and computer science, and John Kleinberg was one of these people again, was thinking about the idea that if two people or two firms, two banks have some sort of relationship, an economic relationship, then they're both deriving a benefit from it, otherwise they wouldn't have this relationship and they wouldn't form this link. But when they form a link, If something goes wrong in that relationship, for example, one of the firms goes bankrupt, that bankruptcy has the potential to cause a bankruptcy of the firm that they're linked to. And each of them are going to take that into account, of course. So if you and I are running two firms and we're making deals with each other, if something goes wrong with my firm, that could have an impact on your firm. We all take this into account in thinking about the links we want to form. And in doing that, we're going to form a network of relationships across the business world, whether we're thinking about firms or banks. In that network, there's a potential for contagion of bad events. So one firm somewhere might go bankrupt, and that might cause a chain of bankruptcies throughout the system. The question we were interested in is how bad is that chain likely to be? And in particular, how does it depend on this endogenous structure of the network, which is the thing that we were doing that most people weren't doing, taking into account endogeneity. And we discovered a result that actually looking back on it is kind of obvious at a simple level. And it's simply that there's an externality in this relationship formation process that when you and I form a link, although I take account of the potential for something bad happening to you to cause something to happen to me, I don't take account of the effect of that on the people that I already have links with. And that's an externality, and that results in these groups of firms that have economic relationships actually being too large relative to what's socially optimal. And they're too large in an interesting way in that they actually push themselves just past the point where huge contagion is possible. So they introduce the possibility of a true collapse in a way that an optimal planner would never do. So this research essentially concluded that even though we typically think about markets as producing optimal outcomes, it's not true in a world in which you have contagious risk.
1: Given that this is largely theoretical, how would you go about applying this to the real world? Is regulation the right move? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, the nice thing about doing the pure theory is you, know, you get to say, here's a phenomenon we've identified, and now you, the regulators, should be aware of this and you should think about it. But we don't try to make the next step and say, okay, now that you know this, here's exactly what you should do. Because to do that, you really have to be way more realistic about what's going on. And there are researchers who are doing that. I mean, there are people who've taken this idea and other similar ideas and tried to be much more realistic about how you think about systemic risk. That's typically not what I do. I typically stand back a little bit and say, here's something to think about. Take this into account in making your decisions, but I'm not going to tell a regulator that you should say, you know, banks can't be too big because that's a really complex situation. So I view theory at this level as shedding some light on how to think about problems rather than saying, here's the answer, which in the end is a little disappointing if you're a regulator because you'd like to say, okay, tell me what to do. And when I'm asked that question, my usual answer is, you know, I I can't tell you because I don't know enough about the situation, but here's a framework you can use to think about it. And that should help.
1: Hopefully it helps a little bit. I hope so. (laughs) Another area of your research that I found really interesting, and it connects here, is that you examine how markets behave when people have different beliefs or different goals. And you have a fun example about the mayor of Ithaca and the decision to revamp the downtown commons in Ithaca. Can you explain this example to our listeners and how your ideas formed about this topic?
0: So that example uh, and this whole line of research is in a paper that's actually forthcoming in the Journal of Economic Theory. So it's, again, a really theoretical paper that raises questions about how to think about what a society should do when people have different beliefs. And the example you mentioned is a way to motivate that at a more practical level. So the the little example is truly made up, just to be sure. The idea is that you're the mayor of Ithaca, and you're thinking about some renovation project. For those of us who live in Ithaca, the renovation project we always think about is renovating the downtown commons, which we've done. We'll see how it goes. But the story is, suppose you're the mayor, you're thinking about this project, and you ask people, should we do it or not? And you find that everyone says we should do it. So it sounds like a great idea. First glance, you should obviously do it. But then in asking people a little bit more about their reason for that answer, you discover that their reasonings are totally contradictory. So to make this more precise, but now getting even less realistic, suppose you find that half the people say, we should renovate the commons because it's gonna make life great for the people who live here. And we're not worried about this attracting more tourists, so having congestion, because who would come to Ithaca anyhow as a tourist? So those people think we should do it because it'll make them as residents better off and it won't have any side effects in bringing in congestion. The other half of the people say, I don't care about going to the commons. I want to bring in tourism. And if we renovate the commons, we'll have a lot more tourism and that'll generate more revenue and more business. And that's good. And each group also says, by the way, if the opposite was true, if the other group is right, then I wouldn't want to renovate the commons. So you know that if you do it in this example with two groups, half the people are going to be disappointed, even though they all said to do it. And if I now make this even more groups so that they have contradictory logic, As mayor, you should say, look, the majority of the people are going to say this was a bad idea ex post, even though ex ante, everybody said it was good. So that makes the obvious decision to do the renovation not so obvious anymore. It turns out that kind of phenomena is a really important phenomena in financial markets. If people have different beliefs, it's not clear how you should think about what's an optimal decision. So our usual results in economics that say roughly let people do whatever they want in terms of trading, because that'll produce optimal allocations, actually don't apply. And this paper is all about how you should think about optimality when people have contradictory beliefs. And then, again, at a sort of a high level, how you should think about regulating what people can do in markets, because it says that in principle, regulations that people are opposed to are actually socially good. Just like in the example of renovating the commons, if you're the mayor, you might want to say, look, we're not going to renovate the commons. I know you all think it's a good idea, but I know enough to know that we shouldn't do it. Here for financial markets, our argument is not that the regulator knows what we should do, but he can say, look, I know I shouldn't let you do what you want to do because this is going to be socially bad.
1: This seems like a problem that is pretty ubiquitous. Often, you know, when people come together to make a decision, they don't have the same beliefs or motivations. You know, for example, when the members of a board of directors come together to decide on something for the company, they all want the same outcome, but they each bring their own agenda. Do you have any real-world examples of this?
0: Yeah, so I can do real-world examples, but let me actually start with the first part of your question, which I actually completely agree with, and this is going to sound strange for someone who does economic theory. But it's obvious that people don't have the same beliefs, and it's obvious that has consequences. Typically, in economic theory, that's actually not what we do. One of the very popular assumptions people make in building models of decision-making, financial markets, or whatever, is to assume rational expectations. And in economics, rational expectations is typically taken to mean that everybody has correct expectations, and therefore, of course, they're the same, because being correct makes them the same. And actually, from a modeling point of view, that's a great starting point. But unfortunately, at least until fairly recently in our models, we stopped there. It leads to really strong and beautiful conclusions and a really nice analysis, but it's not as practical as we would like. So part of what I do in my work is to think about what happens when people don't have correct expectations. Actually, I really don't like the word rational expectations because correctness and rationality are not the same thing and to think about what happens with heterogeneous beliefs and then how that affects how markets work, how people behave, for that matter, how you should do things as a firm.
1: So you've mentioned to me in the past that the framework for decision-making and uncertainty is perhaps incorrect. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your thoughts on this?
0: The framework that we typically use, it's not so much that it's incorrect, but it's kind of limiting. We always start in our decision problems when we're doing economics or finance, with the idea that there are states of the world and are payoffs often thought of as money but not necessarily and that everything is represented formally with functions from you know actions and states into payoffs and our framework always starts with saying here what's going on and we act as if the individual knows that and the modeler or the experimenter on the outside also knows it and then we develop a theory I did some work actually, starting a long, quite a long time ago, with Larry Bloom, one of my colleagues in economics, and Joe Halpern, a colleague in computer science. That came about because we were teaching a course together in decision theory, that was a blend of economics and computer science, and we were puzzling about this framework and how it really worked. And we were noticing, or at least I was noticing, and I think you know, I convinced them that it was a real phenomenon, that. Although our students were great at understanding the mathematics, they had a really hard time when we gave them a more practical problem that we would state in words, figuring out how to represent it. That posed the question of, well, wait a minute, there's a first step here. I mean, the problems that we deal with, that firms deal with, that regulators deal with, don't come with states, actions, and functions. They come stated in a language. Uh, you know, you, you have a problem that says, look, I've got some money to invest for retirement. I need to think about how to do it. I can put it into stocks and bonds or ETFs, mutual funds, all kinds of things. But I don't have this formal representation. I have a problem stated to me in a language that I can speak in. So the first step is really how do you take that problem from a language and then build a representation if we're going to try to model what this person does. So we spent a long time trying to think about how to do those representations as kind of a first step into the decision-making model. We built a theory of how to do this. Again, a very sort of abstract axiomatic theory. I wrote a paper at this point probably 10 years ago, won a best paper prize in an artificial intelligence conference back then. And we've been working on it off and on, trying to make it something that actually is more useful in economics. I think we finally gotten there, we'll see. But the whole idea is to say, you know, we're going to step back, take the word problem, then build the model. And there's a real question of whether we build a model that's the same model the individual acts as if they built, And that distinction between the model the individual acts like they're using the one we build turns out to be really important. If those two things don't agree, the individual can do things that, from the point of view of the modeler, who might be an experimenter, look irrational because their view of the world is just different than ours. And if we don't acknowledge that possibility, we look at them and say, well, you're know, you making a decision that's just crazy. You you shouldn't be doing this. We we might even want to recommend they do something different. But it may be perfectly consistent with how they interpret the word problem into a formal representation. So this theory says that's the first step. Let's build an analysis of that, and then go on and do the rest of the work.
1: This discussion reminds me a lot of the work that your wife, Maureen O'Hara, who is also a professor at Cornell and who specializes in financial markets, works on, and and the two of you often conduct research together. Taking a step back here, how did you two meet, and and what's it like (laughs) working with your wife?
0: You know, that's a great question. Maureen and I met in graduate school at Northwestern, actually. I think we met when I was starting my second year of grad school, and she was starting her first year, so I was one year ahead of her in grad school. And we started doing research together actually very early on, and we've continued. we probably write an average of one paper together a year. We've done this for a lot of years now, so it's a lot of papers on a whole range of topics. But many of them have been on market microstructure because that's Maureen's, I think, primary interest. And I've actually become interested in it over the years as well. I mean, I started being interested in it because I had been working on rational expectations in markets. And, you know, I had questions that are more practical, which is like, how does a market really work? I mean, could you reach an outcome that looks like rational expectations? And market microstructure was a natural place to do that. So we initially started writing papers that were both theoretical and empirical. And we've just continued to do this. We often have you know, dinner table conversations where one of us will propose a problem and the other one will say, well, from my point of view or my discipline or in Morin's case, my practical experience, which is one of the things she brings, here's what happens. And, you know, that's a real puzzle. Does this shed some light on it? And the other one will say, well, here's a way of thinking about it that's a little different. And often we end up putting them together and producing results that are just different from what most people do. Sometimes they're successful and sometimes not. I mean, some of the papers that I like best that we've written, no one pays any attention to. Others, people pay a lot of attention to. It's very hard to predict.
1: Can you share one of those papers that you've found were more successful and what do you think contributed to that success?
0: Probably the work that we've done that's attracted the most attention is thinking about the effect of private information on the part of investors or traders in the stock market on asset prices and the cost of capital for firms. So it's a blend of market microstructure, which is the details of how things trade, and asset pricing. And we've argued for a very, very long time that the existence of private information changes the cost of capital for firms and that that's something that firms should take into account. That's, in some sense, kind of obvious on the other hand it's not how traditional finance models work i mean the standard say capital asset pricing model has no role for this because well actually in the basic model there's only one person so that person can't have different information but with multiple people they still typically don't do that basically just because the idea is well you've really got something that looks like a rational expectations equilibrium so in equilibrium everybody knows the same thing anyhow And we argue that during the trading process, even if you're going to get there, people don't know the same thing. And so people make more or less money based on what they know. And that affects the cost of capital for firms. So we've written both theoretical and empirical papers doing this. Some of the papers have been, again, more successful than others, but they've at least attracted attention, even though sometimes it's just plain disagreement. And, you know, that's fine. I mean, actually, I think it's just fine if people disagree. I'd rather have people read my work than ignore it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's a good point. I know that you and Maureen recently published a paper on Bitcoin. I'm actually in Maureen's financial markets class right now, and she was telling us all about how excited she is that she has her own node, and it's very exciting. Can you tell us a bit about the genesis of this work and any of the results that surprised you?
0: Sure. Actually, this it's a combination, this paper, of economics, finance, and computer science. And in this case, the computer science part came from Maureen, not from me because she's been involved with a firm that does blockchain, not Bitcoin, but some other application of blockchain. She got interested in Bitcoin, and there's a computer science grad student we're working with who really kind of brought all this together. We were interested in the question of whether the declining block reward that miners get was causing the increase in transaction fees in Bitcoin or whether that transaction fee increase in Bitcoin, which really was substantial, it takes a pretty good transaction fee to get your transaction recorded on the blockchain, was happening for other reasons. So this paper involved building theoretical models of how mining works and how users compete with each other in a queuing game based on transaction fees. And then using that theory to provide some guidance for doing empirical work, Along the way, of course, having a note on the Bitcoin blockchain so that we could actually have all the data, which, to be fair, our computer science grad student co-author did most of the work on. And then creating a data set and then finally doing the empirical work that the model suggested. And our results essentially say that uh, the declining block reward has nothing to do with the increase in transaction fees. It's a completely separate phenomena.
1: That's really interesting because it, it goes against Bitcoin's incentive structure. Do you have any thoughts on why that is?
0: Yeah, actually, we do. It's natural to think that one caused the other because they happened at the same time. But of course, the fact that they happen at the same time doesn't mean that one caused the other. And the reason is a couple of things. One is that declining block reward, of, block reward, of course, does affect miners, and it's going to decline deterministically according to the Bitcoin protocol. But... Mining is effectively a free entry industry, so you would expect to see something approximating zero profits for miners. So when the block reward goes down, if nothing else changed, including the price of Bitcoin, you just have fewer miners. And as long as you have enough miners to make the system secure, that actually doesn't really make any difference, because the rate at which blocks are going to get written is pre-specified by the protocol. So That's one side of it. On the other side, you have users, and as Bitcoin was becoming more popular, they were having to wait longer and longer to get their transactions recorded. So what developed over time was users really proposing a transaction fee they would pay to miners if they could jump up in the queue. Miners get to choose what transactions to put in the block, and if you're a miner, of course, putting in transactions that offer to pay you more makes good sense. So even though the Bitcoin protocol doesn't explicitly call for transaction fees and there's no exogenous mechanism that sets them, a user can actually attach a transaction fee by proposing a transaction, say between the two of us, where we move slightly more Bitcoins out of my wallet than I propose to move into your wallet. So there's a tiny little bit of a Bitcoin left on the table and the miner who does this transaction can scoop that up. That's the transaction fee. So, it's set really by every user. Every user proposes a transaction fee. And then, if their transaction gets taken, they actually pay that fee, which, if you think back to something we said earlier, sounds a whole lot like a first price auction. In fact, it's very much first price auction like. So, there's a relationship between this and all the way back to things we talked about from the undergrad networks course.
1: What are the implications of this transaction fee structure on the future of Bitcoin?
0: assuming that Bitcoin actually keeps going. Right now, you know, the price of Bitcoin is plummeting. It has the potential to dramatically affect the user base because you're gonna see only users who are willing to pay large fees have their transactions recorded. So you're not likely to see Bitcoins to be used for everyday retail transactions. And so, for example, not replacing MasterCard and Visa but rather to have Bitcoin be used for either large transactions or as a way to speculate or perhaps to effectively move wealth between two different countries for international transactions. So the user base is gonna be segregated. Bitcoin's gonna pick up one part of it, and for that matter, other digital currencies will as well. But the retail transaction part's probably not gonna go there, not unless the protocol changes somehow. And that's something that we, and actually for that matter, lots of other researchers and people who are working in the industry are all thinking about, which is, is this really the best protocol? And again, it actually links back to things we talked about with advertising in search. Question is, back with advertising, what was the right way to sell it? What's the right auction form? That same question applies to Bitcoin, right? What's the right way to design the protocol to decide which users get put on the blockchain?
1: And do you have any early thoughts on how to potentially improve the Bitcoin system?
0: Yeah, I do. Other people do too. And I've been working on this, but this is a world in which there's a lot of competition between researchers and also between people in the industry doing this. So until the thoughts are really clarified and we've really written down something specific and tested it out with simulations, I'm a little reluctant to speculate. I mean, I'm I'm sure we can do better. The question is exactly how. And it's a tough question because even though I said this is like auctions, it's only a little bit like auctions. In some sense, it's like an auction without an auctioneer. The miner can do pretty much what they want. You know, They can choose what transactions to put on the blockchain. For that matter, they can put transactions in of their own as well. So it's not like we have a system where we can say, we have an auctioneer, you're going to pick a protocol and follow it. It has to stay within this decentralized framework of Bitcoin, and that makes it tough.
1: So I know in the past, or I guess off the record, you've told me a bit of the cutting edge research that you've been working on. Is that anything you'd be willing to share with our listeners today?
0: So I work on lots of different problems, ranging from you know this interest in Bitcoin, or for that matter, more generally, digital currencies, to questions having to do still with asset pricing in part based on asking about this pricing of private information using some new tools and new data. So one of the recent papers I wrote with a number of co-authors does machine learning to evaluate market microstructure measures and see how good they are at doing prediction. I think machine learning is another really interesting tool that is actually becoming really popular in economics and to some extent in finance. It's Been around for a while in computer science. It's also really popular with our students. The machine learning courses are just packed.
1: Let's move into the abstract a bit and get a little bit more nuanced. So I understand that you've also done some work on uncertainty and on topics related to the challenges of assigning probabilities to one-shot events like an election or a team winning a game, which, of course, happens all the time. Can you help me and our listeners understand how to better think about these one-shot probabilities?
0: Well, again, I can do this the sort of thing that I often do, which is provide a framework to help think about it. So let me start with just the basics. If we're looking at an event that's repeatable, like we're flipping a coin, and we flip the coin over and over and over, and we see that after a very large number of coin flips, half of them are heads and half are tails, then it really does make sense to think about the probability of heads being objectively one-half. But there are other events that clearly are not repeatable. In fact, there's a debate about whether anything's repeatable, but let's, that's getting a little too abstract. For those events that aren't repeatable, it's not clear what it means to think about the probability of an event. And in fact, there's this beautiful theory called subjective expected utility theory due to Savage, actually from way back in the 50s, that derives subjective probabilities from individuals from their preferences over various kinds of bets. He, he writes down some axioms, which looked pretty reasonable, and says with these axioms, if I know something about what people like to do in terms of bets, I can tell you probabilities and a utility function on money so that they're acting as if they maximize expected utility using that subjective probability. So he provides us a foundation for subjective probability of events, and this is a really popular way to think about things actually all over the social sciences. But that theory is great, But it ends up with a probabilistic representation of uncertainty. And in some cases, that's probably not quite the right way to do things. There's a famous experiment due to Daniel Ellsberg, Pentagon Papers fame, actually, who also did work in uncertainty, which he shows that there's a very natural problem in which most people have preferences over bets that are inconsistent with having any probability. And then the question is, well, given that, now what do you do? And there's been a progression of theories showing that you can represent uncertainty in different ways, ranging from the one that's probably most commonly used in economics and finance to argue that rather than people having a single probability, it's more useful to think about them as if there are multiple probability distributions. So the idea is that people in this world face uncertainty that's not easily quantifiable as risk, and say in the objective case, and when you ask them about the probability of some event occurring, they can't tell you, and they don't even act as if there's a single number. They can say more that there's a range. And the question, of course, is if you've got a range of probabilities, how do you make a decision? Because you can't just say, I'm going to act like I'm going to maximize expected payoff or expected utility. And there's a beautiful theories that have been developed over the last oh, 20 years or so arguing that effectively, it's nice to think about people as taking the EOR point of view, which is the world's out to get me. For anything I do, I look at the probability distribution that would make the expected payoff on that act as low as possible. And I evaluate every possible decision using the probability distribution that's worse for that decision. And then I pick the decision that gives me the maximum, of all those minimum outcomes. That sounds kind of made up, but it actually comes from a very nice axiomatic theory, which is much just as much sense as the one that underlies expected utility theory. And it produces interesting results about how people make decisions. So the point of that literature is that uncertainty can be represented in many ways, maybe with a probability distribution, maybe with a set of probability distributions, and actually there are many, many other ways to do it. So that's one line of research, and actually I've used that, and Maureen and I have used that in a number of papers on financial markets, arguing that that may explain some phenomena that otherwise seem just impossible to explain. And I've also done research with my computer science colleagues, stepping back and saying, wait, maybe this whole framework has a problem, and we should build a new framework. So we can go in either direction you want. We can take this and get more applied, or we can go even more abstract.
1: No. I love the detail. How would using this range of probabilities help us think about an election, for example? Can it be used in that case?
0: It might help explain what happens in an election. It's probably easier to think about an application explaining what you see in financial markets, just because I'm more familiar Mm -hmm. with that. One of the things we observed in the financial crisis was that trade and certain kinds of assets just disappeared. I mean, people didn't trade. And that seems kind of odd. I mean, it's one thing to have the price decline, even decline dramatically, but that normally doesn't destroy trade. And in this case, it seemed to. The standard model of expected utility with a single distribution is just not going to be consistent with that. You're still going to get trade. So Maureen and I looked at that based in part on some very practical observations she had from her work in the markets and did an analysis of it using this model where people have multiple probability distributions. And if you think about that, if you're thinking about holding some asset like some portfolio of loans, if you're a financial institution, and prices have gone down, you know that, so you know your portfolio is worth less than it was, and you might reasonably say, look, I want to get out of this market. I want to sell my portfolio of loans. So you could take your portfolio and shop it around to other investors and see what they would pay for it. If you did that during the financial crisis, for lots of kinds of loans, you'd find that people were offering you a really low price. At that really low price, you know, actually it might be better to rethink your decision. Say, look, if it's really that cheap, I don't think it's that risky. I'd actually like to buy more. So you could then say, well, let's go out and try to buy some more. If you did that during the financial crisis, you'd find that the price you'd have to pay to buy more was really high. So there was a huge spread between what you could sell at and what you could buy for. This sounds like market microstructure again, because it's all about spreads. But this spread isn't coming about from because of the usual reason market microstructure, people having better or worse information. It's coming about because of this ambiguity over what the asset's worth. So this research tried to explain that, and then to make the point that as a regulator, if I'm gonna insist that every asset that a firm holds has to be valued at the price they can sell it for, in a world in which this ambiguity has arisen, as it actually I think naturally would during a crisis, I'm gonna be valuing the asset at a price that's actually really too low because the firm isn't gonna sell it. So the research doesn't really say what the value should be. It says there's a range. And why would you pick the extreme low point or the extreme high point? You should probably pick something more reasonably in the middle. So it provides a reason for thinking about a range of asset prices to use in regulation rather than a specific number.
1: It seems like you have a lot of interesting insights that are derived from collaborating with people in different fields. Your wife, for example, is into finance. You've worked a lot with the computer science department. Can you talk about your approach to interdisciplinary academics and what that means for the future of academia?
0: I actually think that's a great way to think about what I do. Your questions prompted me to think more about it. A lot of what I do is interdisciplinary. In that, you know, I start with questions that I find interesting, which, you know, sometimes are questions that are important practically. Other times are questions that I think are interesting from sort of deep theoretical foundational reasons. And usually they're puzzles. And so it's often going to be the case that if you think about them using just what we know in one discipline, the point of view is too narrow. And so often what I'm doing, in part because I do spend time in other disciplines, I'm in economics and computer science, for that matter, applied math. I know people in those areas, I know something about those areas, and just talking to people and thinking about what's known raises alternative approaches to problems and brings alternative tools to bear that yield interesting insights. Honestly, it's a bit risky because sometimes you start on a project like this and you realize, actually, this just didn't work. And it can take a long time to figure out that it just didn't work. Usually along the way you learn something, but it may not have produced the great paper you were looking for. Other times, it pays off big. So my research strategy is one in which sort of I'm not really looking for little results. I'm looking for things that I think are bigger and more interesting. And often that occurs at disciplinary boundaries.
1: You've shared with me before that you think there will be more breakthroughs that are happening on these boundaries between disciplines. Can you give an example or two about why you think this is and any new and exciting research that will be born from this collaboration?
0: Sure. Actually, I think there's a, there's a huge number of examples of this within economics. I think machine learning is a good example where there are a lot of problems in economics where I think machine learning is going to yield insights that otherwise would have honestly just escaped us. The standard point of view that we typically take in doing econometrics is we start with the idea that there's a data generating process out there and then we apply econometric kind of models to it to estimate parameters. I mean, they may be complex parameters, but we're trying to estimate parameters. The machine learning approach, which is coming from computer science, takes a very different point of view. It doesn't start by pre-specifying a data generating process. It, it starts with just data and says, is there some insight I can get from just this data alone? Perhaps in classifying things into various categories. I think there's tremendous potential to blend those two areas. And there are a number of people working on this, and I do this a little bit, but there are lots of others. So that's one on the very kind of abstract, you know, theoretical, mathematical side. But there's an area of economics that's been going on for quite a while that does this blending really economics and psychology. This is behavioral economics, which Cornell is really good at and has a long tradition in. And that area too comes from working at the boundaries of two disciplines. So I think this actually happens all the time. I think there's a potential for doing many different things of this sort. Most of what I do at Boundaries is at the boundary of economics and finance, which are in some sense almost the same thing, or more at the boundary of economics and computer science.
1: You mentioned machine learning. Can you explain what it is, why it's important, and what the implications are?
0: Yeah, I can at least try. <laughs> One of the disadvantages of working across disciplines is that you're often learning about things within a discipline that everybody in the discipline already knows. You know, so you're doing a blend of research and learning. And honestly, I'm kind of a novice at machine learning. I started learning it because I thought it was really fascinating. I have to admit, initially, I thought it was kind of odd. And then I realized that, wait, there really is something here. So fundamentally, machine learning is about taking data and not presupposing that there's some structure on it and trying to see if you can't use the data to discover things that might escape you if you imposed a structure. So I can make it sound kind of trivial, and in some sense, the basic idea is simple, although the implementation could be really complex. You might be looking at you know, some variables, and if you did the standard thing we do in economics, you'd say, great, you know, got some variables here, I'm gonna write down a model, think about some of them perhaps as endogenous, some exogenous, and I'll go estimate my parameters. The machine learning approach might say, well, let's just look at the data and see what we can discover about cases in which the two things happen together. So if we got, say, two variables, in which case, when is it true in the data that both of these variables are high or both of them are low, and try to group them. In some sense, a lot of machine learning is about taking data and splitting it into groups, splitting it into finer and finer groups, and then asking when you do this classification, how well do you do at predicting? You can predict either within sample or try predicting out of sample. A lot of the words sound a lot like what we do in economics typically, but it starts from a different approach without the underlying structure. It actually can be really, really good at doing prediction, but it it tends to have problems with understanding why the prediction's good, whereas economic models tend to be better at understanding why predictions are good, but in some sense maybe not doing as well with prediction because we kind of tie our hands by running down a model. There's a lot of potential to blend the two things, and that's one of the things that I'm interested in trying to do. I've actually written a couple papers recently, one doing this with market microstructure variables and another written with one of my colleagues here in economics and a grad student. A lot of this research comes from grad students where we're using machine learning to try to understand the distinction between homophily and contagion in terms of how things spread in a particular social network. Homophily means Simply two people do the same thing because they're alike, whereas contagion means two people are doing the same thing because there's been an influence of one on another. That's really important in trying to understand, for policy reasons, what drives things. And Machine learning has been used in this area before. We're, we're trying to use it along with some ideas from economics to help us put right a little bit of structure on the machine learning and see how we can do with prediction.
1: Professor Easley, can you tell us a bit about your personal journey into academics? Did you always have visions of being an interdisciplinary academic and having table chats on Bitcoin with your wife at the dinner table? Or, you know, did you just kind of fall into this?
0: Wow. So I certainly didn't envision myself being an academic from an early age. I came from a family where within my immediate family, no one had ever gone to college. My father quit school in the eighth grade to work and support his family. My mother finished high school, but no one had ever gone to college. I grew up on a farm in Kentucky where we did lots of things, but in part, we raised tobacco. Part of my family is involved in the racehorse business as well. So, you know, I had horses as a kid. We had cows and we raised things. And even though in some ways that was a great environment, I realized that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And I actually really liked school. So in some sense, I just stayed. Went on and got a PhD because I found learning new things and actually doing research really fascinating. So that's how I got into this. And I picked economics, I think, because I found the questions really interesting, but also because I also really like mathematics, although I'm not a pure mathematician, and I find mathematics fascinating. But I wasn't interested so much in doing foundational work in math, but taking math and helping helping me understand economics with it. So that's kind of how this got started. And then, of course, Maureen and I met and started working together, and that was a surprise too. That's really kind of unusual within academia to have a couple who writes papers together all the time. But that's been tremendous fun.
1: You mentioned to me previously that you are a first-generation college student. Nationally, the percentage of first-generation students at four-year universities is growing. Why is it important to keep growing that number, and what do we need to do to help these students succeed?
0: Yeah, so I think that's a great question, too. I think this is really important because I think a big part of the reason our society works is that I hope everyone sees opportunities to prove their position in life however they want to define improving it. And I think college is a really important part of that. So I think that having more people involved in higher education is just plain good for us. And for a lot of people, they look at this and they see a system they don't understand at all. I mean, because they don't know anybody who's involved in it. And I was like that too. I mean, I didn't know anybody who'd ever gone to college. So I got really lucky. But I think it's tremendously important to support first-generation students so that they can go to school. Again, I got lucky because I got lots of scholarships and I actually went to the University of Kentucky for free truly free. I mean, I didn't pay tuition. I had grants to pay for books and actually a little bit extra. That's kind of hard to do, but I think Cornell and a lot of other universities are really making an effort to do this because it's important. But I think it's equally important to support those students once they get here or get wherever they're going, because many of them don't have the social networks from back home through their friends and parents to rely on that other students who, you know, come from the part of the world where everybody, of course, went to college has. So I think we really need to support them. That's part of the reason that I volunteer to participate in a new freshman advising program that Cornell started this year. The group of faculty who participated, Actually, it's been great. We have 50 faculty participating. Each get 10 students. And we've been meeting with them, 10 freshmen, we've been meeting with them once a week. Not as a regular class in some discipline, but more to talk about life in the university and how to succeed, think about the challenges they run into and offer advice. My students are a blend of, you know, people from various backgrounds, but I include some first-generation students, and I've actually really enjoyed getting to know them. Um, Normally, I don't get to know that many freshmen very well. These are now people where I know their names, I know their faces. We run into campus, or in each other on campus, and say hi, and we occasionally stop and talk. I think that's great for all the students. I think it's really important for first-generation students.
1: Do you think that we need to look at the metrics differently, that perhaps it shouldn't be acceptance rate of first-generation student, but really perhaps graduation rate instead?
0: The success rate is really important. We typically actually don't focus on that. I like, I like that question. We should be doing that with first-generation students, with underrepresented minorities, for that matter, with any kind of student group that we're really interested in, both in attracting them to universities and being sure that they actually can succeed once they get here. And, and Cornell, particularly in the recent past, has made a real effort on this. I think other universities are doing it too. But obviously, I'm a big proponent that we have to Keep working on it.
1: Stepping back just a second, let's kind of test just how interdisciplinary your skills truly are and maybe move to the area of psychology. Do you have any tips for working with your spouse?
0: (laughs) Now we're getting to be very practical. You know, one of the things that we've noticed in working together is it's going to sound really strange, but I, I believe it's true, and I think Maureen does too. We're actually, in some ways, nicer to each other when we're working together than when we're not. That sounds odd, but what I really mean by it is, you know, there are things that you would say to your spouse or your partner about, you know, their behavior and how it affects you and what they're doing that can be really critical. You know, sometimes you get mad and you have, you know, you say things you probably shouldn't have said. You don't do that with a co-author because the co-author will just walk away. So when we're working together, we tend to work together really pretty professionally. It actually generates interesting interactions. But I think it's, for us, it's been important to actually, when we're working together, I mean, obviously we're married, but we also treat each other as co-authors and we treat each other with respect. We'll still say, in fact, I probably do this more than Maureen does, You know, after we worked on a project for a while to say, well, this project's hopeless, this is not going to go anywhere. We should just quit, go do something different. Maureen will often come along and say, no, you know, know, we're not going to give up yet but we're doing this as co-authors. We're not trying we're not being critical of each other.
1: Do you think the same rules apply when working with friends?
0: You know, I think they do. Working with co-authors is something I really enjoy. In fact, it's it's what I do all the time. It's important to treat your co-authors with respect and see what they have to say. Try to see what you can get out of each other. And it's true in any relationship. But I think with co-authors, it's really good to think about things from the perspective that people bring different skills and different insights. You know, so someone you're working with may say things that on the surface just don't make any sense. And I try to use that as an opportunity to figure out, okay, what's what's going on here? What am I missing? Rather than to say, oh, this is crazy. You know, you can't do that.
1: Professor Easley, it's been amazing talking with you today. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work?
0: So I have a website at Cornell. Maybe one of the best things to do if people want to find out about what I do is to look at this Networks book that John Kleinberg and I wrote. It's online, you can find links to it from my website or John's website, and it's free. We really wanted to influence the direction of this field more than making money. So you can read the book and see how John and I think about topics. We also did a course on edX. John and I, along with Eva Tardos, who's here in computer science, did this course together. I think the course is actually really good, and it's free, so you can go in and sign up for it and watch us give lectures.
1: Well, again, Professor Easley, thank you so much for joining us on Present Value. It's been a wonderful conversation.
0: Oh, thanks. I've enjoyed it.
1: The Present Value podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team, Michael Brady, Harrison Job, Caroline Wright, Chris Albarico, Serena Olavia, Bernardo Espinosa, James Feld, Jack Moriarty, and Jonathan Tim. I'm your host for this episode, Caroline Wright. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.